One Week Season. Fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. Hilo, we are back. 2022, baby. What we're going to be doing here is we're going to be doing a weekly best ball podcast. This is going to be heavily weighted towards the theory, towards the teaching, towards growing as individuals and as a community here in the best ball scenes. You know what the deal is. We're back, baby. OWS 2022 season kickoff extravaganza. We're going to get right into it this week. This week, we're going to be covering, again, very heavy theoretical aspects. We're going to be talking about game theory. We're going to talk about roster construction theory, all the theoretical aspects of best ball and how we can place ourselves in the most optimal position to leverage something that we talk about all the time in variance. With that said, I'm going to introduce my guest for this week, he is a professional poker player, heavily his understanding and uh, kind of manipulation of theoretical aspects of fantasy, heavily rooted in that poker element from Game Theory Optimal, very similar to kind of my background and my studies with Game Theory. That said, I'm going to bring him in, my guest for week one, Mr. John Warner. John, how are we doing today, brother? I'm doing well, buddy. Thank you for that nice, kind intro there. Um you got me a little shook now. I was I was all prepared. I was ready to go. And then uh and then you dropped that this was the first episode of the season. I thought there'd already been one. No, so dude. Being, being the kickoff guest, I mean that's that's woo, that's high praise right there. I'm excited now. <laughs> Let's go, man. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, dude. No, it's I uh, you and I go way back. Um, I would call us fantasy friends before anything else. Um, but we go way back, you know, we've been jamming about fantasy football for what, four or five years, something like that online. Um, hope to finally meet you in person this year at the world series. Uh, we'll see if we can both meet up, uh, over there. It seems like you're going to try and make it out for the main event and I might miss that now. So we'll see if we can, <laughs> we'll see if we can't get together, man. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I hope the stars align. I hope the stars align. We, uh, it's peak wedding season here. So yeah, I'm part of a couple wedding parties and trying to make sure I get down early, but yeah, we'll see here. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, you Canadians love to get married in the summer, which is weird for us down south where it's all warm and stuff. <laughs> yeah, where it's super hot. It's Yeah, it's the only time yeah. it's hot. We got to take advantage, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks for coming on. Talk to me a little bit about your background. I kind of alluded to a little bit of it um, in the intro, but talk to me about your your background with uh, with game theory, with theoretical components, with managing variants. Like, talk to me a little bit, man. Um. Yeah, so... Basically, I played poker. Um, I basically just built and beat games for, I don't know, 10 plus years now. Um, I started primarily on Full Tilt. I became an online team pro there. Then when they merged with Stars, I was a team pro there. I was Supernova Elite for four or five years, something like that. Um, and then I pivoted to trying to, uh, build games. I was still playing poker throughout, but I started trying to build games and I tried to build, um, poker based app. I tried to build a peer to peer, uh, gambling network, um, like a, like a betting site. And then mm -hmm. you and I worked on a best ball site together for about a calendar <laughs> year there. That yeah. was, uh, 
good times and um oh what could have been right yeah. and uh, <laughs> now seeing the way that these best ball sites are taken off um yeah and then and then i heavily got into best ball call it the first summer of draft and i was just pumping those three-man drafts over and over and over again and really dove just headfirst into that and then it's kind of carried over the last two years and actually right now I've been like, I'm still playing poker, um, but I've been drafting like max entering everything on underdog every day, regardless of sport, just to learn. So um, they're very low price point right now. Like they're like $5 daily contests. Some go up to like 25 and 50, but you can get down like 33 entries or something like that, or it varies. It's like 25 to 33. So I've predominantly been playing baseball and I've just been experimenting with like what onslaught stacks look like or what um, blocking my opponents look like or what auto auto drafting looks like and just kind of tracking and charting it all because I I somewhat believe that like results don't matter like in quotations like the way running backs don't matter like in quotations Mm -hmm. um but that being said I think working from base results and then building backwards makes a lot of sense in terms of building up theory. So that's kind of what I'm experimenting right now. And then hoping to port some of that knowledge to like my BD, BBM and puppy entries this year. I love it, man. So you're, what I'm hearing is, and, and what, what I want the listeners to take from that is you like to try new things. You like to take a game and see how you can develop a game plan to beat it. And I absolutely love that, man. Uh, that's why I think we get along so well as we're both that like analytical, like I'll call it analytical curiosity. Like we want to, we want to know like why things are the way that they are and how they can be better and how you can improve. So, uh, absolutely love it, dude. Um, best of luck to you in doing that. I want to see that data when you're done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, We'll we'll mess around with it for sure. Yeah, for sure, dude. Um, and hopefully, yeah, like you said, hopefully we can meet up at the world series. Uh, we'll have to, we'll have to take some, uh, some social media pics (laughs) if we get to do it. Yeah. Yeah, dude. All right, man. So when we're talking about theory, when we're talking about game theory in particular, one of the biggest aspects of what we're trying to do is how we manipulate, how we manage, how we, how we leverage the thing that I love talking about so much uh, in variance. So when we talk about like season long football, we have so many different variant acts or aspects of variance that can come into play. You have injuries, you have changing dynamics of the NFL game itself. You have changing dynamics of personnel, you know, players changing teams, you have coaching changes, you have all this stuff that goes into the variance associated with a season long game. You know, we're talking about best ball here. So that's a season long football game. So in your mind, like, First of all, like what is variance from a best ball aspect? And then what are we doing? What are we doing to manage that or control that or or manipulate that in our favor? Um, Okay. So first off, like variance for me is understanding range of outcomes and understanding that like there's a, there's a, a mean aspect to like, there's an average that's always going to fall in the middle. And that's largely what projections are based around. And then outside of that, we can fall 
almost infinite standard deviations away from that if the variables are so extreme, right? So you could take whatever the COVID season, or you could take uh, Calvin Ridley from last year, for instance, like I hate boiling down to isolated examples like this, but it's a good one where it's like, nobody even thought it'd be in the range of outcomes that he would just like decide to just not play football as like a one, two turn pick guy. And it's like, well, we're managing our range of outcomes, but this is also within standard deviations of average like outcomes. No, wait, what? So, um, I I think from a theory standpoint, it's just managing an overall portfolio of range of outcomes. Yeah. No, I love it. So, okay. Keep continue, please. Uh, well, I, I think there's, there's obviously a number of ways to do that and whatnot, but to get locked into like binary, like zero or one takes and just cut off, um, parts of the game tree is so inherently flawed in my mind because the variance has a negative connotation to it, right? Like people think of variance and they go like, they, they, okay, let's use a DFS lineup. For instance, um, I won this week. Oh, wow. Look at me. I'm so good. And then the next week, oh, I lost this week. Oh my God, the variance was so bad, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. no, 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 no. Variance works both ways. Like <laughs> yeah. there, there are positive outliers that boost and that's a part of variance, right? So when we're talking about it in the context of best ball, we're actually looking to seek and embrace some elements of variance, right? And we can control and manage which elements of those are, you know, the running joke of like, MVS better in best ball, like this kind of thing. And it's like, well, it's because he has these peaks and valleys of weeks and like spike weeks. So we're trying to um, embrace that in some regard, right? Anyways, we we keep going with that later, but yeah, no, there was a lot in that response that I want to unpack. Um, Okay. The first of which um, obviously is the spike week element. So when we're talking about theoretical aspects of a game where the computer automatically sets your lineup each week, what becomes more important or not more important, but what becomes an important element to consider is that spike week potential. I like to boil that thought down into an idea that I call usable weeks. Okay. And and that goes into, you know, a lot goes into that, right? It is, it, it brings in the element of roster construction because based on how you're building your each individual roster will, it will influence what players will enter into this usable weeks realm. Right. So like that could be anything from like a, we'll use an example from this year. So like a Melvin Gordon, uh-huh. I got, I got, I got a lot of flack for a take that <laughs> I, I saw that <laughs> on, <laughs> a take that I had on Twitter about Melvin Gordon. I got a lot of flack because Mr. Melvin Gordon himself responded to the tweet. Uh, I didn't tag him. I just used his name. Uh, he found the tweet. And so I said, friends don't let friends draft Melvin Gordon. Why the hell did I say that? It's a good line. <laughs> it's a good line. So yeah, so I took I took an aggressive route with that uh, with that tweet. Um, Melvin Gordon responded and said like something to the effect of like "Why not, fam?" or something like that. Um, here's why I said that. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on record to defend a little bit of why that take happened. So if we look at Melvin Gordon, so what is what are his 
we'll say, what are his range of outcomes within one standard deviation? Well, he's most likely to be a weekly 10 to 12 touch guy. He's most likely to see anywhere between four to six touchdowns in his 80% solution, right? So we talk about variance. We talk about ranges of outcomes. If that makes up 80% of his range of outcomes for this upcoming season. And now you get to the high end. We're talking about an injury to uh, Javante Williams ahead of him. We're talking about um, that's really the only thing that will come into play that will see him surpass a, a, you know, one, two, three standard deviations on the high side of his range of outcomes. What could happen to force him to the, you know, 10% low end of his range of outcomes. Well, we have a new coaching staff. We don't know how he, the, they are going to break up the touches there. We have uh, Javante Williams, who obviously is coming off of one of the most efficient seasons for a young running back in NFL history. Uh, We have, we have all the stuff that could, you know, tilt his range of outcomes, his standard deviation, his projections, his, um, his bell curve to the low side. So there's, you know, all that is baked in to a 10th, 11th, whatever round he's going in currently. But what I'm looking for in that range of my drafts in particular is I am looking for usable weeks. I want players with the spike week potential. I want players who can give me those usable weeks to come in. And, and that's, this is far beyond just like bi-week fill-in. Like you, I want let's get rid of like that nomenclature for best ball almost entirely as we continue here, right. because like your uh, bye weeks don't matter. <laughs> like I, I tweeted that as well. Like we don't care really about bye weeks. We want highest ceiling potential from a combination of the 10 positions that make up our roster. So right. here, look, can I say one thing? There, yes, Mark? please. Is the, the baseline for a usable week in a best ball context is so much higher than in a season long, like your traditional season long league. And people don't make that. Well, I, I don't like to frame it like that, but a lot of people don't make that distinction or, or, you know, realize that because like when you're talking about usable weeks, well, like you can go back to like the old, like Matthew Barry had this thing like 10 years ago when like all of us start, first started playing fantasy football. And it was like, you needed eight points from every roster yeah. spot. And that was like the benchmark in like a standard scoring, like whatever league. Yeah. Well, like obviously that benchmark changes exponentially based on the scoring system that now exists, but then it pushes even further further when you're talking about an auto-generated lineup where you're taking your best weeks like whatever a usable score is nowhere near what we think uh, a standard fill in a roster spot like trying to get 12 touches from my second flex in a managed league right yeah so how many like how many weeks usable weeks would i classify melvin gordon's 2021 season he provided four to five depending on what that roster construction and threshold would be and mm-hmm. those and that is with no spike weeks of 25 plus points that right. is what i want like i want that ability to see those 25 plus point spike week uh outputs i want the ability to score 200 points fantasy points in a given week and you're not going to get there if you have melvin gordon and his 12 points from the ninth 10th 11th round whatever you're getting so that is my reasoning for what i said on the twitter machine uh <laughs> massive pushback i had people coming at me left and right like oh melvin gordon scored 200 fantasy points in half ppr like awesome dude he also played like 15 16 games and that was spread out over that time frame so Exactly. Have fun with that basically is my response. But anyway, 
that was the first aspect of what you said I wanted to cover there. I'll mm-hmm. go, I'll close that loop with offering two names. And again, this isn't a picks podcast, but from a theoretical aspect, this kind of ties the loop um, and closes that gap um, of thinking, I think, uh, and how we approach those running backs that are going in the same range as Melvin Gordon. There's two okay. guys. There's two guys in that same range that are being paid as basically as top 14 overall yearly NFL salary at the running back position. The first is Chase Edmonds. The second of which is Rashad Penny. Both of these guys are being held down because they are part of an ambiguous backfield. They're both being paid out the wazoo. They, you know, Chase Edmonds is getting like 5.75 mil this year. It's like, and then Rashad Penny is like right below that. These guys are getting paid as if they are like, the lead dude. We have no idea if they're going to lead their backfields. What I do know is Chase Edmonds is a very natural fit for the new scheme in Miami. He is playing on an offense that is supposed to be highly improved. That means, what does that mean? That means additional uh, per touch efficiency. That means additional touchdown expectancy. That means um, basically the incoming coaching staff is part of the Shanahan coaching tree. And we know what running backs do in that offense. So that is a guy that I want for the potential spike weeks, the potential upside at cost compared to a guy like Melvin Gordon. When we talk about Rashad Penny and sorry, I'm just kind of rambling here. Please jump in as soon as you see it. No, no, yeah, yeah. Finish your thoughts. Yeah. So Rashad Penny, um, he was the RB one in the league over the last five season of last five weeks of last season. So we know that the upside is there. People are down on this offense. People are down on this backfield because they brought in Kenneth uh, uh, Walker. So there's a lot of ambiguity and unknowns with respect to that backfield. But now, and I'm going to kind of tie in the next idea that I want to talk about from a theoretical aspect to Rashad Penny. Mm -hmm. But now we have to start thinking about opportunity cost versus when you are drafting. So I like to call that like draft window um, and variance management through when you are actually drafting. So now we're talking about like early June drafts or even like late May drafts and talk about like a massive contest, like the uh, best ball uh, or the BBM over at uh, underdog, like that has a massively wide draft window because there's so many entrance in that contest we start talking about like how do i manage variance when i'm drafting so early well i want to jump all over the guys that that basically have a a we'll call it a a risk to reward balance that is tilted in my favor and rashad penny is like the screaming example of you know a guy whose upside does not match where he is being basically drafted currently. So um, Mm -hmm. I want to leverage that variance. I want to put myself in position to have the variance work in my favor. And these are two guys where I see as prime examples that are going around Melvin Gordon uh, that could provide those uh, that profile that I'm looking for. All right. That was a lot, dude. The next thing, we're gonna, <laughs> next thing anything kind of closing, any thoughts closing that idea or that, that thought process there? Uh, no, I think it was well articulated. I think, um, I, I think more or less you're, you're talking like in a vacuum, you're talking about shooting for player profiles that have ceilings greater than like, if you draft Melvin Gordon in whatever the, 
10th, 8th, whatever. I, I don't even know what his ADP is off the top of my head. But if you if you draft him, like his ceiling outcome is like what a fourth round pick. Whereas if you like draft Chase Edmonds or Rashad Penny and they pop off or Penny is exactly who he was in the end of last year, like you're looking at the upside of a second or first round pick. And that's kind of like what we want to bake into our profile is the exponential growth potential of a given player, right? Yeah. So those, the reason that I brought up those three running backs specifically is they all fall back to back to back in. Yeah. It's like 35, 36, 37 or something, right? They're all. So Melvin Gordon is ADP of 110 on underdog. Chase Edmonds is ADP of 112. And Rashad Penny is ADP of 117. And they are back to back to back running backs um, off the board. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, I'll close that thought and we'll move on. So Mm -hmm. the one thing I brought up is about, variance as it pertains to varying draft windows. Personally, I break up the the draft season, we'll call it, into three distinct draft windows. So okay. my, my first starts after the NFL draft. I don't really dive into the streets until after the NFL draft. These large national contests typically don't open until then anyway. Um, yep. The puppy was, you know, the, the puppy one was open or the puppy three, whatever the hell the, the first puppy uh, was this it was year. the the big board the big board was previous there's a That's big right. board and a big board superflex beforehand and then and then there was the draft and then they opened bbm like right after the draft yep. and puppy now I dig it. So that's kind of when my draft window starts in my mind as well. Um, there are contests that that are open prior to, but a lot of those are are filling around the same time as when the draft kicks off. So yeah, I think I got like 50 entries into that big board yeah, prior dude. to. I didn't even jump into that because I was so just in poker mode. <laughs> that I yeah, was, I was grinding. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's when kind of my draft first draft window opens. It will close at the start of camp. So that is like the, I'll call it like the, the draft window of unknowns. We don't know what depth charts were going to look like. We don't know what offensive schemes are going to look like. We don't know a lot. And so uh, that is draft window one. Draft window two for me is uh, between the opening of camp and the start of preseason. And that is, we start to get some camp reports. We start to get some information that we didn't previously had. Uh, out of camp, we start to see who's running with the ones, who's running with the twos, all that kind of stuff. We start to see a little bit of the depth chart breakout. Um, and that is what I'll call draft window two. Draft window three for me is um, the start of preseason till the start of the NFL season. So that is typically four weeks long. Uh, we're looking at three weeks moving forward with the new collective bargaining agreement. Um, and so that is kind of where we start to get more fidelity into what offenses are going to look like. We start to get more fidelity into what coaches and coaching staffs are going to be looking to do with particular players. And we start to get more information and we have to assume that the amount of information that we get throughout these three distinct draft windows goes into a bucket that I've talked about before called common knowledge. Yeah. And when we're, I know like, you know, this and you can expand on it as well, but for the listeners, when we're talking about like, game theory like what is game theory it is basically taking everything we know which is we 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 pump into a bucket that we uh that we base decisions that we are going to make we place everything we know we have to make assumptions on the amount of information that the entire field knows and that is what we place into the bucket called common knowledge 
And then we obviously we've um, taken those theoretical aspects of variance and unknowns and stuff like that. And then we're basing, we're taking everything from those buckets and we're developing a game plan to try and beat whatever game we're playing. And that is game theory basically boiled down in a nutshell. So if we assume that all the information in today's day and age in the NFL, if we assume that all of that goes into common knowledge, everybody that's playing these games has all of that information. Well, then we have to assume that, or we have to, we have to develop varying game plans to beat the games in those different draft windows. Correct. Yeah. That is cool. So that is why I break the different, or, or the entire draft season, we'll call it, into varying draft windows because there's varying amounts of common knowledge that comes into play. Uh, in can those... I can I add something to that? Please, please do. This, okay, so th- this brings in like the conversation of ADP in my mind because ADP increasingly gets more efficient over time, mm-hmm. right? Because n- unknown variables shift from being unknown to known through those windows that you're referring to. So this first window is what I call like the IKB window. It's like the, I know better. It's like ADP doesn't matter as much as we think it does at this given time, because we're pushing to a point in which the market stabilizes and becomes more efficient over time. So the most efficient time in which you could ever have ADP would be at the end of the season, right? And working backwards from there, every isolated window back to now, it gets less and less efficient. That is, no, that's such an amazing point. And I'm going to throw it back right back at you. How Mm -hmm. are you managing and manipulating and leveraging the variance aspect based on what you just described? Um, I, I, it's interesting. It's a, it's because, a wide question, but <laughs> yeah, because, because like the, the common response would be to shift over time from an exploitative strategy to a more GTO strategy as the window becomes more efficient. Right. What does so, that mean for the listeners? Okay. Okay, so if we're starting right now in this like IKB window, it would be like my ranks, my projections are better than yours. And I know where I'm at right now in terms of whatever player eval, roster construction, whatever my pieces of leverage are at this given window, I would be hammering those. And then as we shift and the market catches up to whatever you can throw in every player example of whatever, like, like I think ATN, like a guy like that, he's going to get steamed and like JK Dobbins, they're going to get steamed from like fourth and fifth round guys. And they're going to push up to like second and third. So now all of a sudden, like as the market catches up, we're going to randomize within deviations of ADP as ADP is more efficient because I'm not a huge proponent of historical data, but we've seen with historical data that as the closer you get to kickoff is the highest scoring teams like in a vacuum. Right. But that has nothing (laughs) that has nothing to do with people's quote unquote abilities to pick teams. It's because the benchmark of picking teams is ADP. So every casual player is utilizing ADP and the market has now, 
the market has become so hyper efficient with their ADP because they've been drafting for like three months and they've made all the mistakes that now the recreational player can just jump in and not be that far off the benchmark of point scoring by just staying around ADP. Oh my God. I could, this, that was the most amazing. I hope everybody is paying like super attention to this because that was like, I, I have tingles, man. Like, yeah. Uh, so there was a lot in that response and um, I, sorry, I wanted to, you to clarify what you meant by exploitative versus uh, GTO because. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, I think you did that. Um, I think you oh, did oh, that. Let me say one more thing about yes. it. Yes. Um, an exploitative strategy. And okay, bear with me. I'll use a poker analogy. Let's right? go. Um, it, if I gave you aces every single hand, you would willingly accept aces every single hand, right? But you would not win every single hand, right? Like mm-hmm. we can just agree upon uh, upon that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm starting to hate this analogy. <laughs> You want me to? Um, you want me to? No, jump no, no. In? You got it? No, no, no I got this. Okay, right. let, let me think. Okay, <laughs> it was it was a good analogy in my head, and then it just didn't like play out as as yeah, yeah. well as I as I thought it was going to. Okay, let's use let's go back to basketball. Let's just stick with basketball. All right. Um, if you perfectly pick the highest scoring players, you are going to win. That is an exploitative strategy. If you throw out roster construction correlation, if you throw it all out the window and you just have a time machine and you perfectly pick the highest scoring players, you win. Mm -hmm. That's an exploitative strategy because you're not using any overarching rules or overarching strategy um, to create your roster. You're simply picking the best plays. Now, that is a damn near impossible, repeatable process, right? It, and it's the reason we come up with rules in which to score more points because it's so hard to pick the single highest scoring player. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now once we make these rules, we give ourselves, we afford ourselves the opportunity to come within a range of outcomes of the highest scoring players. I don't know if that, that no, dude, sound. it this, sounds, yeah. Let me, let me tie the loop. So, okay. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a perfect explanation. I'll, I'll dumb it down into like its most simple form because when we're talking about the game of poker, when we're talking about the game of fantasy football, it is not a zero sum game for the most part. And what I mean exactly. by that is you are not playing somebody head to head where you win, they lose. Right. So the, the goal is to place ourselves in the most optimal position to win the most money when we get things right. And we've talked about that on OWS before. Yeah. The, when you look at it from like a DFS perspective, we saw countless times last year where it was like no correlation lineups to ship the Millie maker or like, and that is like, that is going back to your example of best ball. That is like that person just picked the best players uh, with a time machine and they just won all the money. The problem is that is not a repeatable habit pattern. That is like playing the lottery the percentage chance of that happening is so low that we build these tools and these habits and these, these theoretical aspects of our game to help 
get us into that position at a more uh, at a higher frequency we'll call it so we have we have stacking we have player correlations we have theoretical aspects that we've all developed over time to try and place ourselves in the most optimal position to make that money if we Correct. talk about it in from the aspect of a zero sum game the most simple way to boil that down is like the game of rock paper scissors so you have three different plays that you can play and you're playing heads up against one other player. The exploitative aspect is you are paying attention to how your opponent is playing. And you notice that like greater than 33% of the time, he is throwing rock to lead off your games. So what does that mean for you as you develop your exploitative game plan to beat this player? Well, it basically means never throw scissors to start the game that's that's all it means so you're Mm -hmm. you're basing your lead move off of historical tendencies off of your observations and you're developing game plan to beat that game that is a zero-sum game i win he loses wham bam thank you ma'am here's the money i like i like in your analogy because the average individual's first response to that would be to throw paper. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? Because you go, oh, he's throwing rock more than 33% of the time. Oh, throw paper. Duh. It's like, no, 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 no. You play to not lose that spot. Mm-hmm. Right? And that becomes the exploitative strategy associated with it. Anyways, that was cool because it's a really good analogy to use. Can't continue with it, but it's like, a, it's a really good analogy to use because it's so simplistic and relatable, but just one answer like that shows the difference in your understanding and game theory of then what the offshoot answer would normally be. Yes. And so this is, <laughs> this is kind of the, the trajectory of my exploration into game theory and my teachings on game theory. I'm trying to clearly relay that mindset shift because where the field is at in their understanding of game theory and we've seen more and more game theory as each year progresses but where the field is at is they want to throw paper so back to that example like a perfect gto strategy in a zero-sum game is to be 100 completely random right so you would throw you would make your rock paper and scissors throws it's, yeah it's to be it's to be not necessarily random it's yeah. to be 100 percent non-exploitable exactly so yeah. there's a slight nuanced difference in that and again that is like higher higher level game theory thought uh mm-hmm. but again so if you if we boil this down a little bit further in order to be and i don't want to go too far into this rabbit hole because we have a lot to cover here but like <laughs> In order to be exploitative, yep. you have to then be susceptible to being exploited. Yes, that is a correct. weird, nuanced version of, of what we're talking about here. And like, what does that mean for the rock, paper, scissors example? So if I notice that my dude is throwing rock and leading with rock more than 33% of the time, I would then not throw scissors like we talked about. But what does that mean that I'm now leading? I'm now leading with 50% paper and 50% rock. So I am now exploitable. But that is, uh, again, different thinking and methodologies for developing those thoughts in a zero-sum game where it's I win, you lose, uh, versus a a large field contest, a non-zero-sum game, a combinatorial game, as we've talked about earlier, where there's so many infinite numbers of vast moves that you can take in a game like best ball. And that goes down 
into the roster construction theory. Uh, all right. That was a lot. And I hope we didn't lose anybody because <laughs> we went down a rabbit hole. Yeah. But now we start, I want to talk about next, um, about that roster construction piece. So we covered the draft windows, we covered variance and how it changes in different draft window. Well, I want to talk about roster construction and primarily roster construction or historical roster construction trends. We have, we have, I'll call them quote unquote, like bunny ears, historical numbers on Mm -hmm. what, first of all, for best ball, they were advancement rates. Um, now they are like top 1% rates we're starting to get into like, uh, so we have like three years uh, worth of data on these national contests, right? Yep. Is that enough to be basing game plans and decisions on with respect to roster construction for you? No, not even close. All right, cool, cool, cool. Like it's not, <laughs> it's like, it's not even uh, like when I see all of this advancement rate data. Okay. Here I'll frame it as I would rather work with data than fly blind. Sure. Right. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's a piece of the puzzle, but to treat it as absolute and like people are coming out and like, oh, you got to draft hypofragile because it's advance rates were whatever, 28% and and nothing else comes close and, and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of factors, unspoken factors that go into that. Like we could have seen the most the greatest outlier season in the history of fantasy football from a fourth round round wide receiver last year. Oh, right. That's weird. It like, happened. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, Oh wow. Maybe. So maybe that skews our data. Like maybe, maybe we had the greatest zero RB season of all time. Maybe we had the highest bus rate of early round running backs of all time. Like who knows? Right. Because these trends could, these trends could take years upon years to filter out, right? Because we could be dealing with um, maximum outliers right now, and then catering a strategy off of that is inherently flawed. But that being said, as much as we theoretically strive for optimal, we don't necessarily need optimal to win this contest. Okay? So... From a theory standpoint, we're trying to be perfect, but we don't necessarily have to be perfect. We just have to be better than our opponents. Yeah. So, so there's definitely merit to like some of the strategies to employ. Absolutely. But do I think, okay, here, I'll throw out a hot take here for you. The people love the hot. Let's takes. go for the people. Um, it's not with, Okay, it's within the range of possibilities, and I think it's incredibly higher than people realize that the optimal roster construction, when you build backwards from a result, so not like not you and I drafting today, but when you build backwards from a result, that the optimal draft strategy would be like ones at the onesie positions. So we would be building like one, three, 13, one. Yeah. And now that would bake in so much variance where you have to absolutely smash on every single pick, obviously. And you have the one zero one of, of tight end and quarterback on the same roster and blah, blah, blah. And we're factoring in that bye weeks don't matter. And then you're factoring in some forms of correlation and blah, blah, blah. But like from a purely theoretical standpoint, that could be the optimal construction. 
And it most likely will be the optimal it, construction, whether it's this year or next year or 20 years from now, I do not know. But like in theory, that will be the optimal. So if we start with that and work backwards from a mindset standpoint, I think it's better than working from quote unquote hard data and working backwards because that data might be inherently flawed. Absolutely. So much to unpack that I absolutely love from that. We're going to start with um, (laughs) how did you arrive at that conclusion? (laughs) And I 100% agree. (laughs) And I, I posted a couple of lineups on Twitter and I did this because I knew I wanted to be covering it on this podcast. Uh, It was, it was basically, they were three running back rosters and Uh the amount of people just coming out of the woodworks and saying, what the hell are you doing? Like, what's the, what's the word beyond hyper to call this lineup? Like people are just so ingrained to like throw my lineup into like a, you know, pigeonhole it into something that already exists. Like, mm-hmm. okay, this is taking hyper fragile running back to a new extreme. Well, if you think about what we are all, what game we are all playing by, we all have prescribed rules that we must play this game of best ball by we take a contest like or a a platform like underdog and we have to start one quarterback weekly we have to start two running backs weekly three wide receivers a flex and a tight end yep so if we have those constraints that everybody is playing this game by and we know that the value of a best ball roster spot is a sliding scale based on the round that you are selecting a player. Bear with me here. After no, I like this, when yeah. you get up to about round seven, the value of a running back and a wide receiver drafted in those rounds is about equivalent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So once we get beyond round seven, so we're talking about like no more starters on our weekly roster the value of a wide receiver is greater than the value of a running back. Correct. There are exceptions to that. And those are the high variance players at other positions. So the high variance um, quarterbacks, the high variance running backs. Handcuffs. Yeah. And those are these guys and, or the chase Edmonds and the Rashad pennies that we talked about earlier, you know, like these guys yeah. who have the wide range of outcomes that can provide the same profile on a best ball roster that wide receivers they're they're outliers they're not the they're not the rule they're not the exactly so if we are constrained or if we if we throw that into our our knowledge bucket when we're developing our game plan of how we beat this and if we know that we can play four wide receivers on your roster in a weekly sample what then would be the most optimal positions to be taking after round seven the answer right. is wide receiver. So yeah. when you then back that up again, and we're working backwards here into your roster construction discussion that you just had, well, then if things went optimally, you would have as minimal of the other positions as possible. Now, again, this is what you're doing by by entering this discussion is you're basically amplifying variance to the extreme. And right. in a contest with 40, 480,000 entrants or whatever the hell it is, like yeah, 451 too. Yeah, that is like that is what you need is to be embracing variance. 
Okay, um, yeah. Okay, so let me add to this. Yes. I think a huge portion of this in this variance component is the payout structure because it is so top heavy. And I don't think people realize that if you, for one lineup, like let's just hypothetically say that like I was playing one lineup for this contest, one $25 entry. For that entry to break, like for that entry to break even, right? Like you, okay, never mind. Let's let's think about it in the context of, of 150 lineups. Mm-hmm. If I'm entering this 150 lineups and I'm spending like the 37.50, right? I have to have one lineup. Like, let's just say all those lineups lost and I had one out of the 150. Mm-hmm. That one out of 150 has to be in like the top 0.0004% of all lineups to break even on those entries. Mm-hmm. Now, now if we use like, you know, some of the advance rate data and let's say we built them all hyper fragile and that back stuff, the back information that we're being fed is correct. Like it's not, you know, the historical data is correct and it's actually actionable. Like we, we literally can't break even by just making the first round, right? Mm -hmm. We can't make, we can't break even just making the second round. So we have to be seeking like the highest of extreme spectrum outliers to then make meaningful money. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what drives the thought process. But behind these extreme examples because we're trying to, you know, there's so much is about week 17 and optimizing and for, for week 17, because that's when all the money is available and, and we could talk about that and that sort of thing, but you literally have to be such an outlying lineup to just break even that we basically should be optimizing every lineup to shoot the moon. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. So let me then tie the knot on that idea by talking about the running back position. If we look at, if we look at historical games played from like the top, you know, from like the 32 NFL teams and we'll go like their running back one and their running back two, it's about give or take yearly. This is in in it, it ebbs and flows, but it's about 70%. So if running backs are playing about 70% of the the games that we expect them to be playing, if we then are talking about a roster with only three running backs, the percentage chance of those three running backs will like being healthy for an entire year is like 33%. So 70% times 70% times 70%. Yep. And this is just from a pure mathematical and analytical standpoint. So if you are building a roster with three running backs, you are already saying that I know that the chances of these running backs even playing a full season is about 33%. What does that lead the field to do? That leads the field to draft a deeper running back stable because they don't, they're scared about those missed games. Right. From a I want to win the most money when I am right standpoint, I would want to embrace that 33% chance and build my rosters so that 
33% of my rosters have absolute like chances of breaking the world at the quarterback wide receiver and tight end position. And that's how we kind of build this like game plan to like embrace variance in different ways than the field is doing. The field is not embracing that 33% chance. The field Mm -hmm. is saying, I want to manage my variance at the running back position because I know that these players historically will not give me a full season's worth of games. But every year there are running backs who play every single game. Like look at Jonathan Taylor last year. He ended up as running back one because he was healthy and he, his role expanded. So like that is possible that will happen. Like, but that the field is not treating that as a viable outcome in these contests. So that's not to say everyone go out and draft three running back rosters because you have (laughs) to, you have to understand what, variance and what risks you are accepting to potentially win more money when things do go right. You know, if you draft a running back roster and one of them gets hurt preseason or before the week, yeah, before the season even starts, like that roster is not doing anything. So like you have to, you have to weigh what do I win when I am right versus what do I lose? And when we're talking about the confined aspect of an individual roster, I want that scale to be more heavily weighted to I win more money when I am right. Um, And I will manage the variance associated with the running back position over my entire portfolio. So, right. That That was a lot. No, that was, that was great. Like to, to stem it to like a poker analogy is like everybody started playing like large scale MTTs and they were like, Hey, we're going to play like this tight, aggressive strategy. Nobody can exploit us. Like we're Mm -hmm. just going to wait and we're going to wait and we're going to, nobody's going to, we're not going to beat ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the evolution after that was like, well, we're going to play this like loose, aggressive strategy and we're going to exploit those guys who are playing too passive. Right. Mm -hmm. We're kind of in like that kind of window of this game tree right now before we push to like a randomization and GTO when everybody's playing by the same rules. And then you have to randomize within deviations of everyone knowing the rules and this sort of thing. Right. But we're kind of in, in this window of the game tree where it's like, everyone's building the same way. And I say everyone in quotations because this niche little circle of the internet that all shares these same ideologies and you see it in drafts every day um, are building very similarly. So like, how are we going to zig in a more efficient way than they zag, right? Like, Exactly. So back to your poker example, like why did the prevailing strategy in multi-table tournaments, which is MTT is what you talked about, why did that switch from tight aggressive to loose aggressive or even loose passive in, or uh, not loose passive, but loose aggressive? Um, what does that mean? That means like you're playing more hands because like what are if the field is playing this tight aggressive, they're basically only continuing post flop on like two pair plus hands. What are the chances of flopping two pair plus in a random assortment of hands? Like, what is that percentage chance of happening? Uh, It's like less than 8% or something. Yeah, exactly. So if we're talking about the field is only continuing on less than 8%, like, obviously, I want to exploit that tendency. So again, that's just how the, the, the it evolved in poker. What we're trying to do in best ball is evolve our strategies to exploit the passive tendencies of the field. And that is what we're trying to discuss and teach and talk about today. So let's add one more tidbit to this. Cause I think, I think this, I don't think anybody talks about this enough when you put in one entry into the BBM, right? It's $25. And I keep using this as an example because that's what I've been playing. 
if you put one entry in there and it was just like, you know, you just let it get auto picked based on ADP. Maybe you set some construction rules. Maybe you didn't. The EV of that lineup, like completely sight unseen, is about $20 already. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like $21, $22, I imagine. Like, I don't have the math right in front of me right now, but I imagine it's like 22 bucks for that lineup. So you've already lost $3 and that's not even factoring in the rake by just entering one lineup, okay? So if you just accept the fact that like, okay, hey, like we, we've, already, we've already lost a little bit, we have to shoot for like this absolute ceiling with all of them to capitalize on future expected value because there's no money given out for one through 14, right? Like there's one, $1 million prize. There's like one out of 451, whatever thousand I said, there's one person's going to win a million dollars, right? The most likely result of your, of every entry, if you entered 150 lineups is like you lose 75% of them right off the top, right? So we want to afford the opportunity that those outlying leftover 25% like lineups capitalize the most on their their expected value. And all that expected value takes place in like those playoff windows and seeking outliers. I love it, man. What... So in seeking those outliers, and this goes back to the fixation on the, the quote-unquote bunny ears historical data, the yeah. historical data tells us that those outliers, those statistical outliers come in the form of team stacks and correlation. Okay, yep. So that is something we can all agree on. That is, you know, the, the major up talking heads in the industry are talking about that is how you beat these contests. That is trickling down. That was last year. So now this year, that is trickling down to everybody is only fucking talking about week 17. Pardon the French, but like that is what uh, that is what it is devolved into. It's like I'm focused on week 17 because I want a stack with the highest upside and yada, yada, yada. People are effectively making like week 17 DFS lineups in June with no known variables right now. With infinite unknown variables. Yeah, Yeah, literally. it's not no known. It's like infinite unknown that like, right. Yeah. If you phrase it that way, I I feel like it will hit home for listeners a little bit more. We have no freaking clue what is going to (laughs) happen six months from now. Zero. Like if you think you know what's going to happen, go outside, take a walk, come back, flog yourself. And you are like, we, we have no idea. We have no idea what defenses are, you know, last year, the Los Angeles chargers, they had, a stacked defensive roster up and down. Like they were, including me, they were one of, you know, the fantasy industry's top four or five expected defenses. What happened? They got run over by injuries. Baltimore Ravens, they were expected, the Ravens are just going to run a ton because their defense is awesome. And in, you know, in 2020, they they passed the ball only 25.9 passes per game. What happened? They got absolutely destroyed by COVID and injuries up and down the mm-hmm. roster, their offensive line, their defensive backs, their, their linebackers, everything. So they went from 25.9 pass attempts per game in 2020 to 35.9 per game in 2021. That is insane. Like right. a 40% yeah. increase in your passing volume. That's yep. insane. So who drafted like 
thinking they knew what the Ravens were going to look like? Who drafted thinking they knew what the Chargers were going to look like? We have no idea. So how do we, how do we manage that variance through injuries and through the unknowns when we're drafting early um, on our rosters? And that is kind of goes into the exposure. So talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit like how you're handling that aspect of early drafting. Okay, so I've been experiencing this is primarily what I've been doing in the daily contest is I've been I've been playing around with exposure thresholds because in a vacuum players don't matter. Like when they don't talking about, it's kind of crazy to they say. <laughs> and like it like I think it's inherently flawed in like the fantasy football community that like a whole bunch of people talking about like fantasy football and like player takes have now ported over to best ball because it's gotten popular. And then they come with like condensed player takes and like, you know, binary takes on like a fade list and, and guys I will not draft and yeah. like stuff like this. And it's just like, it's just like so unsharp if you're trying to like manage an exposure portfolio over an entire season, like let's just use like the one Oh one, for example, like maybe I think it's CMC and you think it's JT and another person thinks it's Cooper cup. And another person thinks, you know, in theory, I'm going to get 150 entries in. I'm only going to get the one Oh one, like 12.5 times. And then out of those 12.5 times, like I can't simply select, like I can, but like from a balanced exposure perspective, I shouldn't be selecting the same player over and over again. And that's implying that the math works out perfectly, that I am going to get the 101 that many times. There's a chance I get the 101 30 times, right? And so then I'm just going to be overweight CMC just by happenstance. So when someone asks you like, hey, who's the 101 this year? I'll kind of like shrug my shoulders and be like, well, I don't know. It's like, 70% CMC or 60% CMC, 30% JT to 10% cup, you know, less than a fraction of a percent chase, like blah, blah, blah. Right. So what I've been doing in these daily contests, primarily baseball. So let me forgive me for speaking a little baseball right now is I've been managing exposures on isolated days and then treating it as if it's an NFL season. So there's a analogy rabbit hole right now. Mm -hmm. The contests open as soon as the previous one closes. So there's a 24 hour draft window. They start at usually 4 PM Pacific um, for like the late slated games. That first window, there are no ADPs. Well, there's no ADPs in general, but there's just projections that are drummed up by the site in the, in the queue. Right. This that would be like this draft window right now for football. Okay. Then we find out about weather and that sort of information the following morning. Right. So now we get a little more known variables and we find out about weather and who might be injured and, and who whatever. That would kind of be the the mini camp uh pre preseason that you're discussing, right? Mm-hmm. Then after that window, we branch into when the lineups start getting announced, right? So now we're operating with the most known variables, which would effectively be the window of preseason football, right? So we're working with the most known information at the 
end of that. So I've been balancing my draft exposure. Say I have, you know, 20 or 30 entries or whatever, where I'll do, you know, 13, 13, 14 or whatever over the course of those windows to explore how the exposure thresholds change based on the player pools drafting tendencies. Because there's a lot of people that are projected for zero points in that first window. And they'll be like good players. They'll be like Mike Trout, for instance, he'll have a zero projection or Shohei Otani when he's pitching, doesn't have a hitting projection. So he gets zero. So now I can get him in the fifth round, but then by the end of the day, he's going in the first round. Right? So if we use this little micro example and then build it back out to a macro level for football, I think it's a beautiful thought experiment because we can, experiment in that early window where I'm simply just trying to find quote unquote value. I'm trying to find the unprojected guys, the zero guys who will pop off later. I'm trying to find the Mike Trouts who's projected for zero, the Aaron Judge who's projected for zero, who sloughs under the radar, who would normally have an ADP of 101, but now he's falling to the second or third round and I'm exploiting that in that window. Then the next window comes up with you know, a little bit of weather news and stuff. And we start fading certain games based on this. And we start building out exposure to quality weather or quality matchup based games. And then the following window comes where we know lineups. And this is where like, you know, someone like Alexander Madison, we know Dalvin Cook's hurt. So now we're taking Madison at a higher threshold in this last window because of this, right? And then balancing our exposures accordingly based on how we build. So then one day I'll build, you know, the, the okay, so I've gone pretty far with this analogy, but I think it's very applicable. Yeah. Um there there's six man teams with one pitcher, right? And the positional cap is one and then three or two or two and three, right? For infield outfield. So if we just use this as a micro example, we will I will build like onslaught stacks for one day where I stack one team, no matter what, right? See how that plays out in the results. The following day, I'll build like stacks of two and threes, right? And those will be the correlations. Then the following day, I'll do pitcher correlated with hitter stacks. See how that plays out. And now this results data, like, you know, results have a lot of noise and variance in it. So you have to kind of sift through it yourself. But it's very interesting to see what plays well in these isolated examples, because then we can reverse engineer how our exposure should be in the context of football, because the game is the exact same. It's just the way in which the points are scored is slightly different, right? And the players' names are different. So this is a very long-winded answer to say, the managing of exposures happens almost organically in isolated drafting windows. Yep. So when people talk about like, but I think people talk in quotations about like being over the field or being whatever. I don't think most people even know what the field is. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's this, it's this brainchild that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So, I think in like these contests where like 36 players are being drafted and six of them are pitchers, there's this 30 player pool. Well, what's the first 
cue for ultimate leverage in a 30 person player pool because it's to draft people that aren't in in the 30 person player pool and then see how their range of outcomes play right now it's a little bit different because in an isolated game or day slate versus over the entirety of a season obviously it's more optimal to have um more optimal to have Jonathan Taylor than it is Rashad Penny over the course of a long season. But in a one-off, one-week, one-game scenario, maybe it's more optimal to have Penny, right? And that's, you know, porting some DFS knowledge to the game. But the analogy is just to say that the exposure thresholds, I don't think we should be coming into drafts and being like, hey, like, This guy's a fade. This guy's a whatever. I think the optimal way to end up playing these games will to be not necessarily balancing exposures, but having built-in rules that if X player in X draft window falls X standard deviations away from ADP, that then the frequency which you take them is greater, right? And then you can then bake in rules for correlation as well. And then you can bake in rules for week 17 matchups and go further and further down the game tree that way. Does Absol- that- no, dude, absolutely love it. Let me, let me uh, basically meld that thought process into like a, a numbers example. Okay. Um, my highest exposure, I'm through 50 drafts, right? So I, I've done my early draft window, and this is for BBM. I've Are done you my, doing a perfectly balanced, like 50-50-50? I think I'm going to be 75 and then split. Um, okay. But let's say, let's say I stopped right now yep. and did perfectly balanced 50 drafts within this first draft window, 50 drafts within the second draft window, and then 50 drafts come preseason. If I did that, so I, I posted a picture on Twitter of my top four exposure uh, players in okay, through those I didn't see it through yeah. those first fifty drafts. So I have sixty seven percent Rob Gronkowski through fifty drafts. Okay, what does that like? People probably see that from a best ball mindset and are like, "What the hell are you doing being that exposed to a single player?" Well, right. let's let's unpack that a little bit. So Rob Gronkowski. We don't know if he's going to come back. He's currently going uh, in the 10th to 11th round of the mm-hmm. best ball. He's pushed up a couple of rounds recently. Yeah. So all of my exposure is in the 10th, 11th rounds of yep. Rob Gronkowski. If, or I'll say if, or when he says, I am going to play football for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this season, immediately overnight, he's up into the sixth round. It's probably somewhere around there. Right. Yep. So I am accepting the variance associated with that single player in this draft window, because if, when he comes back, he immediately jumps four rounds and I have four rounds of value automatically. If I don't same theory as handcuffs in that regard. Yeah. So if I don't take a single other share of Rob Gronkowski, that my exposure to Rob Gronkowski over my 150 lineups will be about 22%. And if you do the math on that, you know, the math works out. Trust me on this one. I, uh, yeah, 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 that's well. That will that'll be approximately like what four percent greater than field if he pushes ADP to like the fourth or fifth round. I think it'd be something like that. Yeah. So if you think about like perfect, like in a vacuum, perfect 
uh, exposures is going to be about 12% to each player on the draft board. Right. And that's, that's if we like completely yeah. randomize and let the computer take over and just draft our shit. Yeah. Um, so I'll be almost double that. If I don't take a single other share of Rob Gronkowski, like I'm still working through, if I do push my early draft window to 75 teams, like how much Rob Gronkowski do I want to take? So how much do I want to make my early exposure over the field? Do I want to go to double? Do I want it to be like 25%? Like that's what I'm working through right now. But the the point is like, I have my exposure to these guys that could see their draft capital increase the most early. Adam Thielen right. is, is another like massive example of that. Like mm-hmm. he's currently going in the seventh round, like around, he was around like pick like 78 uh, for the last week and a half over the last few days. He's now up into like pick 73, probably because I was smashing him so much. Um, mm-hmm. But I have 46% Adam Thielen through this uh, first 50 rosters. Yeah, he was two three turn guy last year, and then pushed back to like three four turn at one point. Yeah, yeah, this is a guy who has not finished worse than wide receiver fifteen on a point per game basis over the last three seasons. Mm-hmm. Like that's a guy I want exposure to when the price is cheap. Right. Um, again, if I don't take another share of him, I'm going to end up with like sixteen percent. But like these are the guys I want to target, and why we started this discussion on like these draft windows and how we manage and manipulate the variance in our favor during individual draft windows. Uh, any parting shots or to close the loop on that discussion? Um, okay. I want to, I want to go back one conversation before and just clarify something. All right. Um, because I didn't think, I, I don't think I closed the loop fully on like my, like, ev idea about the 25 dollars becoming like 21 mm-hmm. or 22 as soon as you draft okay our goal should not be to spend 25 dollars and protect 22 yes so our goal everyone's goal should be you know like turning 25 into 22 which then turns into 2 million right but that's not realistic it's more like our goal is to turn 25 into 22 that then turns into like 10 ish k in expected value if you make the finals and then give yourself a shot at the finals right yeah let's i just wanted to like say that in terms of like a mindset thing in terms of roster construction because when you jump in and you start drafting like you know, three quarterbacks, three tight ends, six running backs or something like that. It's like, well, why are you protecting this bullet? We yes. only have 150 of them and you have to be an outlier on top of an outlier to make any meaningful money. So like, I think you should approach these drafts as if, you know, I'm going to spend 3750 or whatever you're comfortable with. And it's just kind of like a sunk cost at bullets. I, I mean, it's not a sunk cost, but it's like, theoretically from a mindset standpoint to like make it back to the poker analogy and like why we had that conversation of why guys pivoted from like tags to lags to like whatever is the old school mantra was get in the money, make it to the bubble. Now you're in the money. Now gamble it up because now we've made it, we've got our money back and now let's go for it. Right. Where in reality, the strategy that trumped that 
was just like, hey, we're just going to accumulate as many chips and exploit as many people as we possibly can on the way up that then once we're in the money, nobody can touch us. You know what I mean? So I think we need to take like that, that secondary leap of, of pushing for the outlying expectations of everything. Let's, uh, let's take that idea back to the rock, paper, scissors example. Okay. So if we have the field and if we boil this down to a zero sum game that back down to rock, paper, scissors, if we know that our opponent is playing not to lose, so again, back to the like initial leading example, if we know that the opponent is like recognizes that we have developed our strategy to now throw 50-50 of the two uh, outcomes, and they have then you know changed how they're approaching their game, like what does that mean like from a game theoretic theory aspect? Like if the field is drafting not to lose, and if they are not um if they are like playing to protect their investment, like what should right. we be doing? We should be shifting our variance acceptance level on individual rosters, like to the extreme. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, that- and, and especially in this draft window, sorry, last thought, especially in this draft window, because we know that historically speaking in quotations that this be like the outlier window of extremes. And the closer we get to, like the start when the field has all the known information and known variables, they're going to be like scoring higher, like collectively in theory, we should be looking to hit those windows now. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Is that hopefully we're, God, God, we're jumping like, we're leaping levels of game theory analysis and thought <laughs> that like bouncing the, back and forth <laughs> and and we're like diving into like game theory like the doctorate level game theory as opposed to like going through game theory 101 which i i did on purpose because um and this is why leading the season for this this best ball podcast series i wanted you on because we can explore these like higher level um game theoretic discussions because i spent the last two years like developing the the 101s the 102 level game theory thought amongst the ows crew that i think that we can all benefit the most by by jumping into this doctorate level stuff um so i love it dude um well i mean in theory everyone should have read your uh Read your uh, your course already. So <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, buy my course. Yeah. Selfish plug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, honestly though, honestly though, Mark, it's it's great. It's very it's very good, and it's a very good introduction to this. And then we layer this conversation on top of that, and then we're just going to go further and further down the rabbit hole and the game tree as this game becomes more popular, or as football shifts, like the daily contests shift into the best ball sphere, or yeah, these these principles are going to become more and more important over time to the point in which they may outweigh a, a good percentage of quote unquote football knowledge in terms yes. of playing these games. Yeah, and that's something that that Zandemir has talked about on uh, on our Saturday podcast last season oh, as yeah. well. It's like like football knowledge isn't as important as it used to be, right? Like right. you used to be able to beat these games by just like, Oh, I know more about this game than everybody else does. And that like, that is back to like the early Evan Silva years, the early JM to win years where like they 
they had a, a better understanding than the game of football than everybody else does. Well, now, yeah. like fast forward, like five, six years later, and like we have to assume that the entire field has that same working knowledge. And that goes right. into our our common knowledge bucket. And we have to base our game plan about like around that assumption. So um, super interesting stuff, dude. We have we've gone on for over an hour and we have probably five to ten left. So um, we're gonna jump into, or I guess we're gonna. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. We're gonna finish the <laughs> we're gonna finish the episode um, yeah. by we talked about some historical advancement rates. Do they matter to us? Not really. So we're gonna skip over that kind of talking point that we had coming in here. I want to talk about um, the another layer of the confines of this contest or whatever contest you're playing. We're gonna use BBM as an example because. Um, it's kind of like the, the hotness on the street right now, right? It's this first ever that a, that a best ball first time in history, a best ball contest has had a $10 million prize pool. Like that is absurd. Mm-hmm. So in that contest, we have two teams that advance out of each draft. So when you draft against 11 other teams, confined league of 12, you have two teams from that draft that's going to advance to the round two. Round two is you are in a confined league now with 10 people, 10 teams total, and one team is going to advance. Round three is you're in a confined league again of 16 people, and only one person is going to advance. And then finally, you're thrown into this massive bucket of 470 teams where you're playing Mm -hmm. for this top overall prize money. So... What are you gleaning from that or how are you basing varying drafting strategies and variance acceptance levels off of just the confines and constraints of the contest rules? Um, it goes back to our original conversation of shooting the moon. Like I'm literally just accepting the fact that all the money is in week 17 and am I exclusively optimizing for week 17 um, at certain thresholds, but not entirely. I like to look at the context of an, the entire playoff schedule. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of picking matchups. I just mean that in terms of leaning um, person over person in a given ADP deviation. So I think looking at the context of a, of a entire playoff schedule, of knowing that you know Kansas City for instance is playing Houston Seattle Denver right and i don't really give a shit what like those matchups look like like right now on paper those matchups look like pretty good in terms of like a fantasy understanding but i'm also just factoring in that like hey if i took like MBS and Kelsey that my bring back in the 17th doesn't have to be like a KJ Hamler week 17 stack. It could definitely be like John Mechie or Nico Collins, for instance, and focus on that week 15 to bump. Now, do I think this is like a, a, a means all strategy? No, of course not. Do I do this every single time? No. But I think when we, get further into these games and people start building 
I don't want to say bots, but people are going to start building like bots and algorithms to draft these because right now, like our automated draft process is simply like uploading a rank sheet Mm -hmm. and it can't like think for itself in the future. These games are going to become like so lucrative or profitable enough where people start building like AI to play these games, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Um, and, And we see it in, we see it in, we see it in free games that people build, you know, AI to, to win in-game currency you don't think people are going to discover this and try and build ai to win two million dollars like of course right so i'm just thinking along like to give an isolated example let's say that let's go back to that kansas city and that mvs and whatever that when we get to that end window and i'm left with like a player who's like 10 spots different than adp a, a player who's like 10 spots higher in my own projections and a player who is correlated with like week 15, who am I picking at this isolated pick? I think there's going to be a quote unquote mathematically perfect answer in the near future, because we're going to be picking based on based on like (laughs) optimal frequencies for at what what's the threshold for correlation outweighing projection or what's the what's the threshold for adp outweighing isolated projection and we're going to have like a mathematical answer at one point in time maybe it's three spots of adp outweighs the fact that you have a projection of five spots greater or maybe it's correlation outweighs adp by two picks of standard deviation right and I think it's a very complex game tree to dive down, but I think it's inevitably how you optimize for winning these kind of contests with such top heavy structures. Now, is that a long winded way to say, I believe in week 17 correlation? I don't know, maybe kind of, sort of. like <laughs> it, depends. it depends, right? But like, does it also mean that I believe it stems so much deeper than week 17 correlation? And that just seems to be the hot button topic at this point in time. Yes, absolutely. So (laughs) yeah. So to like answer your question, I don't know if I did, but like, that's my thought process associated with these advancements is that you have to be such an outlier of such an outlier in each of these isolated weeks that they, they all matter. But like, if you're looking, if you're looking at just like, but they all don't matter, but they all don't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's so true. Right. But like, if, so, so right now I think like the super simplistic mathematical like equation is like, oh my God, look at all the money that's available in the final week. And if I get a lineup through to that final week, it's worth approximately 10 K and I should be optimizing for that final week. Like, you know, like I just thought of like a random sidebar tangent. There's the outlying possibility that someone's going to build like BBM, like insurance, like the way that like poker works where <laughs> cash you know, out function. You can, you can, yeah, you can stake and you can cash out and you can yeah. go like this. It's, it's like, it's theoretically possible that people will build like cash out functions for, you know, someone who just had like one $25 entry and then they make it to like this final 100 or 471 entries. And like someone offers them like, like cash out EV, like slightly under EV. Like if we think yeah. it's worth like 11 K it's like, you can cash out right now for nine and I'll eat that variance. It's like right? prop like, swap. 
dude yeah literally prop swap like it's yeah. gonna it's it's actually gonna be nuts but like and i don't think people have thought anywhere near this far down the game tree but like i'm a sicko when it comes to this stupid <laughs> shit and i'm just That's like why you're here dude <laughs> <laughs> like i look at this stuff and i'm like how do other people not see this right now like why is nobody talking about this and just like shout yeah. in my angry small corner of the internet by myself <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean but it's like it, it, it's a long-winded way of saying like Yes, I believe there should be some form of op- optimization. Do I think it should be as extreme as everybody's treating it right now? No. Do I think there's leverage in exploiting how people are treating it right now? Absolutely. Do I think that leverage will exist better, closer to like the first kick day? Yes. I think that leverage will increasingly get better as this idea gets steamed and gets more mainstream that Mm -hmm. there will be pivot opportunities off of it. Not to say I won't be correlating like for those playoff based weeks, just saying that I think there will be better ways to optimally correlate than simply looking at your roster and being like, well, I took Javante Williams in the third round. So now I got to like run it back with a KC guy later. Like, you know, like there's like, now I got to reach five spots on, on, um, MVS or, or, you know, Justin Ross in the last round or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. To uh, to tie a bow on that thought, I think I'll put it like Please this. do. I feel like you've been tying a bow on all my <laughs> ramblings. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what I'm here I just for get you. on these tangents and I just start rolling with like these ideas filtering through my head. And it's yeah, just, so I need a grown up like you to just be like, yeah, let me, I'll figure this shit out for everybody <laughs> and I'll explain it. <laughs> so if we think about it in the terms of like poker and GTO, what did, did humans figure out like the bet frequency for? certain positions with given the known action prior to you no like a supercomputer came to town and was like oh this is the frequency which you should be continuing in this spot given the action previously so what does that mean for like a a, what does that mean for where best ball is currently at that means like humans are not going to be able to figure this out this game is not solved like we have we have no idea what is optimal what we're trying to do is take in all the varying aspects and like oh, to, to continue that thought one step further, mm-hmm. going back to your example of like what matters most in like your 17th, 18th round picks, like, is it correlation? Is it uh, past your ADP spots? Again, the answer is we don't freaking know because like right. the amount of variables that go into that computer driven simulation would be like, every single, like your 16 previous picks, it would have to analyze those 16 picks and then weigh that versus the other factors and variables in play. So the answer is so far from like, I'm going to blindly correlate week 17. It is so far beyond that. that Like we can't even, we can't even fathom like what computational power has to go into like the number of variables that are going into play in this so right if, because your your week 17 pick might be entirely like when it's theoretically computed by a computer it might theoretically be uh directly associated to your round four pick exactly you know what i mean or you're so you're like round sorry your round 17 pick not week 17 your round 17 pick would be directly correlated with your round four within x given like points of adp right so like if a if a computer plays this game optimally they would be 
back picking, like they'd be building backwards from like the 18th round, pushing forward, knowing that like, Hey, this guy's going to be available here. So then like this player is available in this X amount of ADP. And now we'll select this with the known knowledge that we'll get some of this. And like, we do this to like some extent right now, but like the human brain just can't comprehend that. Yes. Fully. Right. It's like, you know, right now I know kind of like how ADPs are and like where the draft board is and like, Hey, if I take, if I, if I take Lamar here, Bateman makes it back in like four picks or five picks and I got this and, you know, Andrews is on that side of the board as well and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like you can, you can do piece together these little like things, but like, you're, you're going to end up having like a grid and I envision it looking like the, like the draft board. Right. And it's going to have all those slots and it's going to have frequency distributions of availability for every single player associated with every single spot. And then correlation frequencies amended to that based on previous picks. So like I'll select like the one Oh four and then all the percentages of every single pick behind that will change and will fluctuate change. Yeah. based on like your optimal pattern will change. Right. Because it's a, it's just a massive game tree. Right. And the players like they're just, they're chess pieces. Right. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. It's a combinatorial game with borderline infinite possible outcomes. Yeah, Which, well said. Yeah, well said. It's uh, it's it's a little bit too far for like humans to comprehend how like many combinations there are. I didn't like, think we were gonna get this deep into yeah, like- dude. <laughs> <laughs> we went deep, boys and yeah. girls. Um, yeah. I think that's gonna do it for us. Yeah, man. yeah. I, I think am, we just uh, gotta shut it down. <laughs> there's, uh, there's only so many rabbit holes you can dive down into this. Um, no, but that dude, that was that was excellent, dude. We went about an hour and a half. Hopefully um we didn't put people to sleep while we're talking about this stuff it's like <laughs> my mom is a lawyer and she used to like put me to sleep like talking about law i, I would right. just like fall asleep like growing up i hopefully we didn't have that effect <laughs> like um uh but no dude this was awesome uh thank you for coming on this was uh really incredible to kind of unpack all of this stuff um yeah, and man. we're gonna we're gonna have to maybe do this again sometime eh? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I'd love to. I'm a, yo, let me plug like a small little thing. Cause I've yes, never please. really, I've never really put out content and I've never really like done anything like this. Like I kind of just like lurk in the shadows a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I did this about a week and a half ago. I made a podcast called paying the rake and it is one to five minute episodes and it's not up on any of the platforms yet, but it will be. And it's one to five minute episodes of just little spout off ideas like this, like ones on game theory, like ones on ones on variance, ones on ADP, ones on like, and none of it is necessarily uh, player specific or targeted. It's very much like this, but in my version of like condensed, you know, one to five minutes. That's awesome, man. So everyone go check out Paying the Rake. Hopefully be up here shortly on multiple providers. Yeah, I kind of think, I don't don't know when you're going to drop this one, but I kind of think like a week's time from now. Okay. So we're recording this Friday morning. This should be live on major uh, players by this evening. So check it out. Perfect. Uh, Paying the Rake. Check out John Warner again, dude. Thanks for coming on. Oh, and it's, it's, awesome. it's roto underscore run on Twitter. If That's you guys right. <laughs> shoot, the, shoot the breeze. God, worst host ever. No, no, no. That's awesome, man. This All was right. awesome. We're going to be doing uh, a weekly podcast like this.
at OWS every single week leading up to the season. Expect I might, you might see and be hearing more of John throughout that series. We're going to have Pavel on. I will be going on uh, Todd. I'll be going on his podcast, talk some best ball this weekend as well. So uh, again, man, thanks for coming on and we will catch you guys later. Later.